You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 263 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. <coughs> Today is World Homeopathy Day. At least if you are <coughs> listening to this episode as it is released early on in the year 2020 in the midst of a coronavirus hysteria. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, uh, I'm not sick. I'm just coughing. Because sometimes you need to cough. Now homeopathy is a pseudoscientific system of alternative medicine. Pseudo in the same way as alchemy is pseudo-chemistry. Or that the indisputable fact that American corporations founded Hitler is called pseudo-history. Many things can be pseudo but most often whenever you hear something called pseudo, it basically is a method to discredit something. Now don't get me wrong, some alternative medicines are not good and you got to know what you are doing, but there are plenty of alternative medicines that are more valuable and effective than any so-called non-pseudo-scientific medicine. As the situation is now, I have three suggestions. Eat plenty of vitamin C, it's not enough to eat one of those pills. You should eat three or four pills at least every day. Eat so much that it makes your piss turn bright yellow. Because if you've reached your limit, the body will get rid of the rest. Two, drink just a tablespoon of electro-colloidal silver each day. And three, do not fall for the fear-mongering propaganda of the news. The coronavirus, as the situation stands now, is less dangerous than the risk of you getting Alzheimer's, or even less dangerous than the chance of you dying from the common flu. I call bullshit on the whole thing. Still, that doesn't mean you should not take steps to protect yourself, especially if you are old and frail. So, electrocolloidal silver and vitamin C. A also an attitude of... I'm not gonna get sick, fuck you, coronavirus, is probably even more powerful than vitamin C and colloidal silver. The scientific community would not agree on that. They would just call it a placebo, but if placebo works, then uh, it is medicine. So what better way to celebrate World Homeopathy Day than to have an episode about pseudochemistry? or alchemy, as I like to call it. We've had plenty of laboratory and spiritual alchemy episodes in the past, so this time I thought we would look more at the history of alchemy with the help of author Jo Herlihy. Her book is called Alchemy, A Search for Truth. In this book, she tells the story of the people, the books, the controversies, and the dangers surrounding the secretive art of alchemy and the search for truth explored through the history of ideas, philosophy and religion. I'm not sure how much you know about the characters of alchemy, and there are a lot of char characters. Uh, but to make it easier for you to listen to this episode, let me say a few words about some of the alchemists we mention. Paracelsus. Paracelsus was a 15th century Swiss physician. <laughs> Swiss physician. Try saying that 50 times in a row. 
Swiss physician, Swiss physician. <laughs> Paracelsus was a 15th century Swiss physician, <laughs> what the fuck? physician, alchemist and astrologer of the German Renaissance. He was a pioneer in several aspects of the medical revolution of the Renaissance, emphasizing the value of observation in combination with received wisdom. Paracelsus is credited as the father of toxicology. Check out episode 131 if you want to hear more about his life in depth. Count Alessandro di Cagliostro. Cagliostro was an 18th century Italian adventurer and self-styled magician. He became a glamorous figure associated with the royal courts of Europe where he pursued various occult arts including psychic healing, alchemy and scrying. His reputation lingered for many decades after his death, but continued to deteriorate as he came to be regarded as a charlatan and imposter. Check out episode 91 if you want to learn more about this guy. Come to Saint Germain. Saint Germain was an 18th century European adventurer with an interest in science, alchemy and the arts. He achieved prominence in Europe high society of the mid 1700s. Prince Charles of Hessel-Kassel considered him to be one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. And finally, Giardino Bruno. Bruno was a 16th century Italian Dominican friar, philosopher, mathematician, poet, cosmological theorist and hermetic occultist. He is known for his cosmological theories which conceptually extended the then novel Copernican model. He proposed that the stars were distant suns surrounded by their own planets and he raised the possibility that these planets might foster life of their own, a philosophical position known as cosmic pluralism. He also insisted that the universe is infinite and could not have a center. He was burned at the stake for his views that we now know are mostly correct. Okay, I hope that is enough for you to follow along. So let's get started. Here's Joe Hirlihi. So thanks for being on the podcast. That is uh, fine. I'm very pleased to be on it. Can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yes, certainly. Okay. Um, my name is Joe Hirlihi. I'm living in central England in a place called Nottingham. And um, I, just from the outset, it's probably useful to say that um, I'm not involved in alchemy. I'm not an academic. Um, I'm not spiritual. Um, I'm somebody who's come at this whole discussion from uh, curiosity and interest. Um, I work in uh, public service and work that I've done in the past around research been much more um, practical and technical around things like data, information, privacy. Um, but my interest around this, so that just in terms of me, is as I said, it's curiosity. And um, like probably lots of other people in and around the world of um, podcasts are just interested in history and uh, lots of things. And I think that's, I gradually... Um, found myself looking into this subject so um, there was no plan it's something that just sort of emerged so my book is called alchemy a search for truth 
and I published it just before Christmas. The um, book is, it's the idea of it came um, partly because of, as I said, I was, I'm interested in history and I'm interested in um, science and I'm interested in um, the emergence of philosophy and religion. And I've been to various different conferences, um, particularly um, which I reference in the book, the Academy, which has been going for about nine years, where they look at quite um, over a weekend, they look at um, a whole range of um, topics over the years around consciousness, free will, um, identity, just some sort of fairly fundamental philosophical questions. And I was looking around various different um, sources to look at. And one of the um, podcast series I came across was one by um, Travis Down, Pete Coleman, which was the history of alchemy, which I imagine a number of your listeners are probably familiar with. And I thought that was a fascinating series because uh, it was uh, a take that looked at individual um, people directly involved or indirectly involved in and around alchemy. And through the sort of informal discussions that happen that happen through each series, it gives you a nice context and raises lots of questions about who were these people, the times that they lived, what was the different connection between them. And um, I had a discussion with um, Travis over the course of um, a period of time, and we were thinking that maybe he might like to develop his website further, and that I would write some contextual narrative to help place a number of these out, these um, characters that are in his podcast um, within a wider context. So that was the fairly simple idea because I thought it was a bit of a way that I could understand how these um, people that were dabbling in ideas that appeared to me quite mysterious, that I could understand um, their context, but serve a wider purpose for listeners. Um, but as I went on, obviously, um, uh, as, as you all know, that I didn't at the time, how complex and rich and interwoven the subject is with um, many different subjects. So gradually the idea for the book emerged um, into what it's become now. And what I've done is, in one sense, you can see it as a bit like an accompaniment to the podcast series because it's character driven. So I've embedded about 50 of the different um, characters that appear throughout the series, throughout the book, but to make it and give it some sort of structure and the context that I wanted, as I understood more about those characters and when they worked and what they were working on and the various different ideas at the time, I about eight, well, eight chapters um, emerged out of that which um, so it follows the characters chronologically and what I do within each chapter is that I situate um, alchemy within a wider economic, social, political, historical, economic context. Um, so the book I would say is called Alchemy Search for 
the truth. But in in one sense, it's about the context in which that search for truth happens. Um, I think the caveat that's quite important to place on the book is um, for people expecting a detailed history of alchemy, there are much better um, and actually proper academic texts. So um, Lawrence Principe's The Secrets of Alchemy, for example, or Jim Akalili's book on um, uh, Arabic science, two books, for example, that I would suggest if people want a more forensic, detailed study of the history of alchemy. So I think my book, I would say, is an outsider's take on alchemy. Um, and I think it provides um, a wider set of understanding about the um, some of the practice, the theology and religion and the philosophy that um, within which alchemy takes place. So that's a fairly broad, a broad brush. And what time frame is it like? If it's chronological, what year does it begin and end? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, what I did was the first two chapters are the backstory and. Um, The first chapter looks at, um, and, and there's a reason for this, is that it, it uh, looks at ancient civilization uh, very briefly, um, Babylon, Mesopotamia and Egypt by way of contrast, and then Western, the first Western civilization within Greece. So um, we're talking um, uh, quite some way back in terms of BC. Um I do that for a purpose because I'm drawing on some of the where people go back to in terms of where the origin of um, alchemy is said to originate. And then the second chapter is looking briefly at Alexandria in Egypt because that is a fairly important linchpin for the story of alchemy in terms of scholarship, um, alchemical practice um, emerging under the Roman Empire. And then the rest of the book, the remaining six chapters, um, take us through to the early 1700s. Um, it does come to a bit of an abrupt finish, um, I think, at that point where we come to the sort of end of the golden age of alchemy, which I explain in the book. And I, I think for some people that's going to be a bit unsatisfactory. Um, so that's the time span. And I found that was the other reason why it became a book because um, to try to make sense of that period of time needed a bit more of an extensive um, overview. So I would say that that time period um, covers a fair bit of investigation. So I think your readers will be able to tell it's not, not in depth, but it does provide a broad brush outline as a hopefully quite a nice introduction to people. In alchemy, in the alchemical community, I guess you could say, uh, when uh, different alchemists of the past are discussed, there's usually like three categories, like the probable charlatans or crackpots, the uh, 
the real ones that maybe may managed to make the stone and then you have the ones that uh, we don't know if they made the stone or not but they are respectable as uh, healers in general because many alchemists uh, work with just healing also like doctors in a way and uh, one of my favorite in the last category is uh, Paracelsus and he uh, hasn't received much respect in the normal history books because I think if you read his history he should be included in the history of of medicine and healing in the mainstream history books did you include him in your in your book yeah Paracelsus is um, Paracelsus is there the Luther of physicians um, I think some people have called him and I felt he was a great um it was interesting because when you put him alongside Luther and all of the other things that were happening, I think that's why for me this was really fascinating in being able to, um, regardless of which category I was looking at, and I suppose that's again because I'm coming at it from an outside view, you could see the different parts that people played, as you've said, the, the charlatans, the real ones and the, the uncertain ones is that you could see the part that some of those different people played within the context. And Paracelsus, I think, was fascinating. And um, around that time period, as far as I can see, is that you had lots of very important breaks happening with the um, traditions that had been set by the church and uh, the wider frameworks of authority. And you can see that with him, for example, breaking from people like Galen, that was quite, I think, important. Galen, obviously, I think, had been very important in forming medicine for a long period of time, whereas Paracelsus um, was looking much more at learning from experience and practice and observation and understanding the wider environmental impacts on the individual and I thought he was really interesting because coming from a mining area he was and I think his whole upbringing and background was around the the practice of um, uh, mining and the experimentation and the use of metals and 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 such like so I also agree he was um, he was fascinating and I think he was as um, irreverent and um, challenging and um, I think made some important breakthroughs in terms of um, how people understood um, the relationship between thought, ideas and the need to be able to interweave that within practice and experimentation. So he's quite an important linchpin, I think, isn't he, in terms of a a transitionary character. There's a lot of healing knowledge that used to exist i guess it comes from the way back when we were tribal and shamanic more but uh, amongst the housewives of those days and the grandmothers and paracelsus was always uh, interested in learning from from the housewives and the grandmothers because they knew a lot of herbs and things you could use to heal different ailments and that kind of knowledge and tradition died out when those people were considered witches later on. 
Yes, and I, I mean, I haven't looked at some. Of, I haven't looked at that in detail, and I think obviously we're looking at fifty alchemists around a topic I wasn't um, that I wasn't very familiar with. I don't think I will not have done justice to a number of um, these characters. I think the weaving together of them probably tells a slightly different story, which in and of itself is quite interesting. However, I think the point that you are just dwelling on in terms of some of the um, the less formal, um, organised, um, uh, what would you call them, the sort of less respected, the more sort of um, uh, practical day-to-day lives that people lead. And I, I think I weave that, the whole question about witches and magic and the way that the um, the role of the church from pagan religions and uh, its relationship to Catholicism and how that changes as the church becomes under more and more pressure, and as um, as knowledge becomes moved out of the sort of control of the um, the church away from the monasteries away from the cathedral schools into the universities and out into wider society and you have a situation where um, uh, academic and and re- religious texts are translated into the vernacular and you have a much more um, and and libraries um, become located more widely in the community. I think that relationship between local knowledge and um, academic, scholarly, formal, religious, institutional knowledge, I think does create a lot of serious tensions. And that's why I think I spend quite a lot of time in the book, not necessarily exploring what you looked at there in terms of things like herbal medicine, but the way that pagan religion um, seriously challenges the um, church and how over time certain practices become demonised initially through the church and I think later criminalised through the state authorities so I think the discussion of witches in relation to that is really fascinating. I think, for me, that's how I then understood alchemy, which was the private study of it. There's a number of discussions that I, again, I can only I can only look at briefly, where you find um, that the question about the secrecy and the, of the practice of alchemy does change at different times. For different reasons sometimes it could be to do with trade secrets other times it could be to do with a certain elitism and a, a gatekeeping of knowledge um and at other times um it's it it seems that the secrecy almost becomes a an imperative and a matter of life and death so i think the stuff about local and local knowledge um around that period of the sort of 14, 15, 1600s is incredibly important. And you just get a real sense of the danger of the time that people were living in and um, the sort of peril that people were facing, um, depending on what ideas they were practicing and the sort of 
the very blurred line between heresy and orthodoxy, I think, is another one that's quite a strong theme throughout the book. There was a time when you didn't have a proper royal court if you didn't have an alchemist employed where it was like respected. And then uh, suddenly the uh, alchemy is, uh, you know, basically almost outlawed or not respected at all. When did when did that shift happen? When did that shift happen? I don't know because I think um, see when I so because I so when when you're saying from the royal courts, I suppose you're talking about the. Are you talking about in the golden age of alchemy in the sort of sort of 1500s, around the time of people like John Dee in the sort of Elizabethan period. Yes, so when it was, you know, respected. I guess, I mean, even Isaac Newton dabbled with alchemy, but maybe it was just the rise of science. Yeah, I I think so, because you. I never quite... I mean, in some of the stuff I read, you weren't quite sure because people were there under sometimes under duress, which I think the stuff I read around Rudolf II and all of the people going to his court and all the experiments that took place there, which I cover quite a lot in Chapter 7. Um, that is quite a fascinating period. But I think I think you're right. I think it is because the, the stuff I look at in, in the in the in the seventh and eighth chapter, you can see that there is a the break that a lot of the scientists, not the scientists, a lot of the people in exper- who are experimenting, the sort of Newton and Boyle and, um, it, you know, even I think uh, um, it, all the various people, all the things that happen in around um, uh, astronomy and medicine, I think it does mean that um, I think, I think it's, I think what I try to convey in that, end chapter is that the weight of stuff around demonstration and the scientific method um, becomes stronger and stronger and stronger so the way I look at it is quite practically where I look at things like the development of things like um, classification of um, the uh, the scientific method in terms of demonstration um, uh, the um, I'm recalling now just what I did, but I think it, I think it is that thing where the, the need to demonstrate, uh, the need to classify, the need to be able to repeat, the need to be able to show to others means I think the work of alchemy becomes uh, a bit impractical. And I think, I mean, I also get the sense that when you look at someone like Newton, in a couple of the books that I've read, is that he spent such a huge amount of effort and resource, fundamentally, ultimately, to to no avail. That in the in that emerging modern era, the practicalities and the demonstrable ability to be able to turn um, base metals into gold, for example, just was continually eluding people to the point that I just don't, I just think they sort of thought it just wasn't possible. So I don't know whether that, it might be the science, but also I think that that brought, maybe that just brought things out into the open and into the light. And it just meant that there was nowhere to hide anymore, maybe. Paracelsus is one of those alchemists I 
can read his works to learn things and like respect his work but then there are others where you I like to read about them because it's more like reading an adventure novel and Cagliostro and uh, Saint Germain are two of those kinds of characters where some of the stories they uh, are involved with almost sound uh, outlandish and it would be make a very good movie and and uh, Saint Germain and uh, It's also one of those alchemists that uh, some call charlatan or some say he's real, we don't know. But um, what's always fascinated me about him was that he, you know, that he might be immortal and he never died. And then his beginnings was also a bit murky and that he might be really old. Uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But uh, I always thought Saint Germain's life story was was fascinating and also how he was so involved with the events of the times and i think i I suppose what i did and i i agree some of these characters are are really really fascinating and i think if i had my time again and and if i was starting the book again i'd probably approach it very differently in terms of how i read and what i read um But the way this sort of emerged and the different people that I did end up reading meant that I was sort of driven a bit to look at material uh, based around some of the characters. And I, and I think what I was also trying to do was look at some of the shifts that happened in the way that some of the um, the relationship between as above and below that idea around um, the heavens and the earth, I think even if I hadn't realised it quite so consciously when I was writing the book, meant that I was probably drawn to look at some of the astronomers, for example. So there's I spent a bit of time, you know, looking at Copernicus and Galileo and a number of those characters because it feel and this is why it relates back to the earlier chapter where i look at um greece uh, and greek philosophy and plato and aristotle is that there's a there's a strong continuity that you can see that runs through a number of the chapters including the one around arabic civilization where people are using some of the fundamentals of philosophy around change, around the nature of substance, the difference of the nature between ourselves and maybe the divine, and trying to find philosophical basis for that. And I suppose, therefore, when I ended up looking at people in the book in a bit more detail, I was probably a bit more drawn to some of those people who were trying to uncover and push that boundary of heaven and earth, the nature of matter, and some of that tension between is there a difference between the celestial world and the earthly realm, and some of the discussions that happened around pantheism, God being everywhere, um, and what you can and can't know. And one of the uh, quote that I got at the start of the book is around impia curiositas which comes from the um, uh, enlightenment scholar Erasmus who 
like a number of other people, said there's a limit to our knowledge and beyond that we should not pass. And I think that's why I found the, um, along like alchemists, the um, astronomers very interesting because more often than not, whether they liked it or not, they ended up challenging that division between heaven and earth. And and I think that's where someone like Newton got to, is that he couldn't accept the idea that the world was just made up of random atoms and that there was no spirit in the world. So he, despite all of these characters being deeply religious, their own curiosity continued to unsettle them because they either discovered things and thought, oh my God, that changes everything, or they came across things they didn't quite know what to, you know, what to make of their conclusions. So um, there's, they're different characters, I think, to the ones that you've dwelt on, but um, I do think they're a lot of these people are just remarkable characters who just push the boundaries um, and as I said often in great danger um, so you have your favourites like Paracelsus and the ones you've just mentioned and then others that stand out for me although um, not, not an alchemist necessarily someone like Bruno who ended up having a terrible end at the um, Italian Inquisition um, burnt at the stake but you know just wasn't prepared to accept you know orthodoxy and uh, kept pushing boundaries um, so I think the book from that perspective is um, it's quite inspiring isn't it to read about all these characters who lived at different times um, challenging you know significant and scary institutions what I think is interesting is that the uh... The, this scientist called Wallace who basically came up with the theory of evolution and then uh, Darwin found out about it that he had this uh, vision of the theory of evolution in a feverish dream and the same thing that Descartes had a, a dream where an angel came down and gave him the insights that created his philosophies that basically led to the scientific model coming forward and uh, I think it's interesting that uh, they can also be the other way where there's these mystical experiences that create non-mystical things like science and uh, now with quantum theory it's becoming almost like some sort of magic if you look into quantum theory so I imagine that uh, it was very spiritual and then in order to take it to an even deeper spiritual level in the future, you need a scientific foundation. And that's my own view on it. Hmm. It, is a, it is interesting, isn't it? Because it's one of those things where I end up in the book a little bit, where there, and I think one of, in the introduction, there's a, I, after doing an investigation I suppose in one sense the introduction the conclusion is where I in the introduction I pull together some of the themes which are the observations of having done an, 
say the book is not really a, an argument it's more an investigation of what happens around these different alchemists and then the conclusion is standing back and saying well, what might we draw from some of this and and uh, how might we regard um this evolution of complex world of that alchemy resides in and i think in the introduction one of the things that um i try and look at as I pulled the book together, was the theme of mystery versus reason. And I think that's that's what you've been describing back to me, isn't it, really? Which is, how do we, uh, now obviously more so in the benefit of hindsight, how do we understand that relationship where you have something that exists on an instinctual level that isn't you know, necessarily fact-based, but is really important for um, society and for a certain amount of time, that makes um, sense. And then people come along and they blow that out of the water and it it disrupts the way that people think about the world. Um, And I I use an example which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, But you also have things where you have this fervent imagination that people have got and curiosity. And I think people have lots of hunches and I'm interested in art. And I think that it's quite interesting when you see early, um, early Renaissance or Renaissance pictures where people are doing drawings that seem fantastical and incredible helicopters and submarines and people like Hieronymus Bosch, and people like that who are early and you think, how on earth did they come up with that? You know, and it, I suppose it's what you're saying in terms of a dreamlike state. But I think it's also, for me, it's, it just shows, for me personally, that it's not necessarily, you can call it divine inspiration or something that, that's spiritual. But there, we our powers of imagination and looking at the world around us and imagining things that might be possible um you know you see a bird fly or you see a fish swim and you wonder whether we you know the to what extent um it's possible to transform and to do and 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 change your surroundings and so i think that we're probably we probably under in it's especially in our today's world of science maybe we underestimate the role that our imagination plays and people can call it what they like but I do think there is that instinct to imagine and to dream and to have hunches and instincts and then you have people who are crazy enough to then go and see whether it's possible to do that and make that thing happen I don't think that's necessarily how it works in the real world but I think over time that is probably what's happened you also have the the thing where Einstein said that he came up with the theory of relativity by daydreaming, another example. And um, also the guy who, Crick, who looked, uh, discovered or with others, uh, the DNA and all that, that he was uh, using LSD at the time. It's another example of, the one examples I've given now are all major once I don't know, I haven't looked into it, minor ones, but these are major scientific achievements and they all come from 
some form of uh, imagination, daydreaming or that kind of realm and not at all very scientific you know, in the source of inspiration to discover something. Yeah. And I think that's because we're more I think I think that's why you have say you you know your your sympathy might be more with someone like Newton's passion than it is with you know Descartes and his atoms even though obviously over time those things come together in different ways in in science and they 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 manifest themselves in in the real world in different ways but there's something which feels more human about, um, to me, more human about uh, someone like Newton, who thinks there's more to humanity than just a mechanistic process. And I don't know how something like that daydream thing works. I imagine that there would be, no, I would suspect from um, the, the little that I know that you suspect that a number of things are there present at a conscious level, but that in the way your mind works, combined with your desire and your fascination, your curiosity, and the fact that you can do lateral thinking and you can make connections in the ways that machines can't, um, that in those um, quiet moments and the unthinking moments, certain magic happens, but in a way that you, you know, you're you're not thinking about a problem, and suddenly you've got an answer to a problem that you weren't even thinking about. And I think, I think most of us find different degrees of that happening all the time. And I think that's just just the incredible way our brain works. And I think we're really, you know, lucky and special to, you know, be in that. That, that position because it means that we live you know rich lives and with endless possibilities um, and I think one of the things that I was just trying to um, explore a little bit in the book is how you have situations where people do try and you think you've got a sense of uh, a certain period of time but then it becomes a bit unsustainable um, I use the example of Mesopotamia and astrology, um, where there's a quite a strong unity between religious practice and agriculture and day-to-day -day practical world. But then over time, the priests become more advanced in what they what they can do in terms of predictability and charting the stars to the point where they can start to predict events a hundred years in advance. But it then becomes out of sync with what people's real world experience is, which is annual inundation of, you know, the rivers and a hundred years hence is no, no use to them. And it doesn't, and the calendars are often then out of sync. So what I'm trying to say, coming back to your thing about sort of dreams and imagination, is that you have the whole sort of um, ways that we construct certain eras. And I think this is what I was trying to do with the book, is that certain eras, you sort of settle on a way of looking at the world. And 
alchemy at different times plays a role, uh, plays a part in that that's quite near the surface of all of that, or it's quite hidden. And sometimes it's on the balance of experimentation and sometimes it's more on the spiritual. And there's an interplay with all of those things. And I think that there are certain points where that ruptures. And I think, I don't know entirely, uh, again, it would need moments of study at a more in-depth level. But I think, again, what we're describing is that I think there's certain times when society comes under real pressure and that the way that you looked at the world isn't really sustainable anymore. And maybe that's sometimes the point where some of those leaps in imagination become even greater because they're more imperative and maybe you work harder and you think more deeply um and that's where you have these amazing sort of breaks that take place and you have i suppose you go from a sort of evolution of thinking to sort of revolutions in thinking which i think is really fascinating and the thing that i wasn't and i'm i don't i don't know what you think about it but one of the things about for me about alchemy that's a bit of a um that plays a bit of its own magic is that there looks to be like a really strong line of continuity going all the way back but then when you look at it in different eras you think well actually is it is it the same thing does it you know some of the, the practice is the same thing but maybe spiritually people are, are maybe thinking about the spiritual world in a different way than they might have done in a previous era. So the practice of alchemy and experimentation may have some elements of continuity, but the way that people might be understanding the spiritual world could well change. I think the major difference that I can see is that the alchemy practiced 400 years ago was uh, more in the lab and the alchemy practice today is more uh, spiritual inclined less in the lab because that is uh, I think for modern people too much work (laughs) because it's quite uh, an endeavor to have a lab but there's still there are people who do that but um, and uh, in my perspective the perfect alchemy would be to do both because the alchemists of the past they were they had their they were living in the lab doing all the alchemy lab work but they were usually always doing like praying and doing other spiritual things whilst they were doing the lab. it wasn't only the lab work and and i think I, I mean a really good example of that for me was looking at the um i think it's in uh, the period where I look at the Arab Empire. And that was really interesting because a lot of the people there involved in science and alchemy, they were polymaths in the way that people were polymaths in the Enlightenment period. Um, and I think that I think that's that is often where you get these amazing things that happen is because people haven't become um, strong specialists. 
And so you have a thing where some of the people who are in the court, who who were the the scholars, would also be the people who would be the architects, or they might be the engineers, or they might be the doctors, and they, you know, and I think a number of the people involved in the around the sort of um, Arabic courts. Um, um, I think a number of them were physicians. Um, not your isolated, you know, the scholars of the sort of humanist Italian period, but people who were very much involved in the sort of um, practical organisation of an extremely advanced, technical, industrious society of somewhere like Baghdad, um, making incredible things. And I think that's where, that's why I think that connection with the practical activity is really important, because I think that as you're observing and as you're doing and as you're experimenting and putting those things to practical use i think that's where some of the synergies happen um between different disciplines and and i think that's where you also have more scope to overcome some of the things that you haven't been able to solve so jumping forward into say like the renaissance period you have Bruno Lesci, the architect, working with mathematician, and um, Bruno Lesci comes up with the uh, question of uh, the, um, the sort of artistic perspective. They knew about perspective, but in terms of the way that he looked at it within the, the sort of vanishing point, in that sense, hadn't been done before. But also, that's a combination of things like optics and also a whole melding of different ideas. So. I think that practical side of things is important because it's I think that's where our imagination really works, isn't it? Because we're we're trying to solve and interact with the world around us. Um, and I think that's real fertile ground um, for um, um, satisfaction, if not happiness or spiritual happiness. It's certainly somewhere where you have a, a sense of um engaging with the world around you and and um moving forward in some way it would be interesting to see if they could take a group of modern scientists that are trying to discover a cure for some disease and you make them while they're doing this work also do like ceremonies and pray and do all these other kinds of things and uh, see if it might create some idea that they didn't think about and have a result uh, well you know interesting because just for uh, something that I had to do around my work I think it is really interesting that um, where I think for a, 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 a period of time and I think that thing from the sort of um, from the industrial revolution or even before you had increasing specialization and I think that probably destroyed some of those moments of creativity, the necessary specialization for our advancing scientific technical world, I think did take away some of those opportunities for those moments of sort of lateral thinking and cross-fertilization of ideas. But I think that there, as far as I can see in the world of sort of science and health, um, the combination of people now working together it does seem quite extraordinary um people who are sociologists looking at demographics uh you've got um biochemists and 
engineers and you know clinicians data specialists people working in ai and all sorts of things so i think that you know um in that sense there i think some of those opportunities for doing some similar types of um, breakthroughs i think it's very promising um one thing that surprised me with alchemy that regarding the mainstream history books is that it's been neglected a lot when it concerns the artwork so in art history you don't really even mention it and it surprises me because alchemy has such a good collection of art and art that's really different from other art in this time period it was painted Uh, did you manage when you're writing your book to look at some of the, the art that they make I mean the the descriptive paintings about the different alchemical processes and that. You know, I haven't, uh, not in any great detail. The, I mean, the Lawrence Principe book does have a section at the end because he is very clear himself about. Um, so there's a there's a sentence in his epilogue where he says, "Thus alchemy forms a part not only of the history of science, medicine, and technology." but also the history of art, literature, theology, philosophy, religion, and more. And he, um, towards the latter part of his book, does look into um, art. And when I was trying to do the cover for um, uh, my book, I was thinking about what to do. And I've got a friend who is an illustrator. And one of the things that we did was that we went and we had a look at a whole number of um, images that we could find online in terms of people working in laboratory, doing experiments or art. And I think we did, in a very strange way, if people do end up getting this book and they have a look at the, um, and they do um, choose to, to to buy it and they get the paperback, in one sense, what we try to do in the cover is synthesize um, a whole load of different images into that um single cover so we've nicked a bit of um you know renaissance looking out the window we've got a little bit of the cabinet of curiosities going on we've got the um emerald tablets we've got scrolls so and we've got alchemical equipment now that's the book that's the book cover but in um where i am in the midlands over in uh, the museum in Derby, which isn't that far away from us. Do you know, I don't know whether you know Joseph Wright of Derby. He's done some amazing oil paintings. There's The Alchemist, and there is also, oh, it's the experiment with the bird. I don't know if you know the one, it's with the, um, where they put the bird in the oxygen thing. Anyway, they're big, and we have, we're very lucky because only sort of 20 miles away, we've got the Derby Museum, and that's got a whole collection of uh, Joseph Wright's paintings. And um, I was thinking I might even see if I could do a small talk over in um, Derby and see if I could get it and have it in front of one of his, uh, in front of his painting, The Alchemist, which would be very nice at some point next year, maybe, see if I can organise that. I was in Derby many years ago, uh, so long ago that it was before I knew alchemy existed. So I actually missed that. I uh, lived a short while in Middlesbrough, so it's fairly close. Uh, lucky, lucky person. <laughs> well, I think the um, I think uh, Derby, 
because Riot had an anniversary, uh, I think it was last year, actually. So they, um, they've they renovated and they've done quite a, um, a, quite a lot of work in bringing um, Riot to a bit more profile because I think he's good for tourism and good for their gallery. So he's got quite a lot more prominence now than he might have done in the past. Um, but yes, it's certainly something that um, I'm, I've... What I'm trying to do to supplement the book, because it's far too expensive to do a, a book that's got colour illustrations. So what I'm doing now, just as a little bit of a side um, to that, is I'm um, just I've got a small little Instagram fragments of alchemy, which I've set up. And what I'm doing is I'm just going back and I'm recreating. Oh, sorry, I'm going through the one to eight chapters and chapter by chapter. I'm just trying to put in. A number of illustrations that I can find on the internet that just um, are just, uh, I suppose, illustrations of the book. And so I'm hoping that um, there'll be some, I'll be able to go and include a number of the art pieces that I can find. So if there are any that you particularly, uh, you think are particularly good, um, or any of your um, listeners, then please let me know. So that's fragments of alchemy, and that's on that's on Instagram. And I'm just start, and I'm just uh, in the middle of doing chapter two at the moment. There's a book called Splendor Solaris, uh, and uh, it has uh, the alchemical process painted out in. I can't remember how many paintings, but uh, and also it has text also. But uh, it's uh, in the alchemical community. It's it's famous for its amazing paintings um, and each painting you can write a book about each painting because it contains so much symbolism um, so and you can find those images online I even think you can find them in quite good high definition and um, what else was going to say uh, so if if people want to buy your book uh, where can they find it it is um, just simply on Amazon um, just if you search for alchemy, a search for truth, uh, and it's in Kindle and it's paperback, uh, makes no difference to me, but I, I think paperback is much nicer. And given this is all about books and knowledge, then having a, a book itself is quite nice. And I've included at the end of it, um, the, there's a table that covers the characters from, um, Travis Dow's History of Alchemy podcast series. I've listed those towards the back of the book as well. Um, so hopefully that's useful. And and as I said, I've got the Instagram uh, fragments of alchemy if people want to have a look at the images there and if they want to suggest any that should go on there, that would also be brilliant. I also want to quickly mention, I forgot another one, that is a favorite of mine. It's called Aurora Consurgence. Uh, and um, uh, there are arguments that it was Thomas Aquinas, but we nobody knows who made it. Uh, also has some amazing illustrations. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. I have really enjoyed it. And it's really nice to be able to talk about the book. So um, thank you for your time. And hopefully your listeners will find that interesting. Please follow and support the podcast. Go to naturalalchemist.com for all the relevant links. 
Now, whilst putting this episode together, a good friend and an alchemist that I know dropped some bars and I asked him if I could play this on the podcast. So here is Nibiru and the a cappella demo The Lapis, unpolished. Sit back and enjoy the flow. In the next episode, we will be looking at benzodiazepine. Freedom is in the mind. Past the blackest opaque, a storm's raging along. Paths cast in darkness, kings uncaging his pawn. Life's designed to find and shine. Divine light is the rings bring the dawn. From nothing bursts life, spirit is birthed in this song. Emerald notes devote vitality while expanding the growth. Insomniatic attack agent smiths through their cloak. Lost in Pan's forest, traverse this labyrinth of oak. Old trees spring stream of consciousness and through its roots floats a boat. Sailing waves of realization ascend Himalayan white-tipped peaks. Concentric circles symbolize the bullseye that he seeks. Crown of thorns and antenna, Luna's reflecting her own seed. Dove's albedo purity stained red, the pelican must feed. Scarlet drops the sulfur soul, complete the cycle to behold. Blazing ashes, flaming feathers, igniting secrets once untold. Gazing the pool of self-reflection along this lost uncharted road. The fool's fates to find perfection in your vile rejected stone. Photonic particles prancing, enhancing prismic dewdrops. Unite polarities, rhythmic dancing, singular sight sees the cyclops. Eyes on the matter at hand, observing the moment till time stops. A brief pause, period of rest, ascending the pinnacle pyramid of Cheops. Distill truth from fiction, refracting lenses, dispels obscurities. Food for thought, wheat from shaft, transformation of impurities. Benevolent thoughts, flowing streams, torches lit with Vulcan's fury. Irrelevant lies, blindfolding justice, cross-examine judge and jury. Collars blend, spectral splashes, transmits knowledge through the masses. Love transforms a whip that lashes, sparks above the phoenix ashes. Traverse the spheres and to them pass them. Movement rotates circular fashion. Whirlpools whirling, slow then fasten. A center nebula's divine reaction. Compassion crying, so moist the sky bends, salt ascends the space of eyelids. Gaia's breath and tears of fire. Flutes sing whispers, vivified violins. None is some, not all is one. The ball is square while ground is there The bird of truth now thrice has come An offering for those who listen A reminder to myself Books from the Akasha that will not fit on a shelf The most humble song ever sung Dispensing jewels but not for wealth A genius mumble, words of wisdom Patience now and perfect health Foolish magicians, men hang with stars The lovers of Earth's tarot cards are dealt Vibrations resounding through the ethers Transmuting spirit of sound is felt Need time for space within illusion, indeed wills are real, spin cycles of confusion, watchers observe unannounced intrusion, fixed and volatile exist in fusion. Opalescent goddess painting pigments, scarlet prints, imagination figments, brush and canvas, they form a union, sky and earth with men and women, prophetic poetry, but who can see them? Angels tipping halos, directions of a demon. Is there hope for change? Refusing to heal or free them? To awaken from a slumber? Most prefer a reason. Gigantic glaciers boiling, Vesuvius volcanoes freezing. Swine feeding pearls, kings unclothing, fashionable freedom. Vision universal, now eternal, exist in every season.